I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. Now, I'd like to talk to you about walls. Scripture makes clear that there are walls built for several reasons. There are walls built for your safety. There are walls built, in essence, to uh, detain you. There are walls built for the purpose of your sanity, to establish boundaries. Some of those walls are good walls. Some of those walls are bad walls. Tonight we're going to see both. It starts with Paul on his way to Jerusalem. It's an over 800-mile trip, over 1,100 kilometers from Philippi, from Philippi, Philippi, from Philippi, all the way to Jerusalem. And he's trying to make it there by Pentecost, Shavuot, which, by the way, in the book of Acts, kind of is where the whole thing kind of blew up back in chapter 2. He has spent Pesach, or Passover, in Philippi. A strange place for it, to be honest, because it really is a place where there weren't even 10 Jewish men. If you remember, he meets a bunch of gals praying at the river. I mean, it wasn't, it's like the least Jewish place to have such a, um, well, to have such a Jewish feast as Passover, the celebration of the Lamb of God slaughtered on our behalf for the freedom of God's people. And from that, then, the, the, the clock is ticking. There are 50 days in between Passover and Pentecost. And during that time, he's making his way. Now, now we've been kind of, if you do the math on this, really, we've gotten quite a bit of that time. It seems like every place he's going, he's stopping, he's sharing. Remember, he's made his way to Troas. As he's made his way to Troas, that's the place where he pulls an all-nighter. Eutychus falls out the window. He kind of comes back to life with Paul laying on top of him. Um, and it just, you know, it's been a real fun ride down through to Jerusalem. And God willing, we'll make it into Jerusalem tonight. Now, what Paul does say is that he doesn't know much except this, that the Holy Spirit testifies that chains and tribulation await him in Jerusalem. So he says, I don't know much except this. I'm going to get beat and I'm going to get arrested. That much I know. But beyond that, I really don't know much. And he tells us that in every city... So here more than anywhere, we, are lit, we get this list of places that you might seem to be, to be honest, irrelevant in most cases, except God takes careful note that Paul is visiting all of these different cities. Now, he could just say he visited a handful of places and he made his way to Jerusalem because it isn't like he spent a lot of time doing anything other than what he normally does. He teaches people, he's challenging them, he's encouraging them, except there are two things that really amplify. One of those things is that he has this sneaking suspicion he's never going to see any of these people again. So that means every place he's seeing, he's kind of thinking it's the last time he's going to be there. Now that really does amplify. And again, the other thing is he says in every city, the Holy Spirit testifies that these things await him. Which means, by the way, we'll see 13, 14 places between the end of chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21 that Paul will visit. 13, 14 different places where the Holy Spirit said... I want to remind you one more time, you're going to get beat and you're going to get arrested. How do you like me now? And, and in that, Paul tells us that that doesn't stop him. And that, by the way, presents our first wall. Because in this, this is a dangerous wall. It's the wall of fear. Now, throughout the book of, of Psalms, David makes clear through God's power, he can overcome a wall. He can scale a wall. And for most of us, we kind of look at that and go, wow. Big deal. I mean, we don't think of that, and probably one of the reasons is, when was the last time you had to jump a wall? Now, growing up in Chicago, I'll be honest with you, that's a big deal. Because I, we saw a sign just a couple days ago, it was a picture of a Doberman, and it says, I could, I, I could make it to the fence, and I think it's like 5.7 seconds, can you? And, and I think that's kind of the idea. You want to come over this gate, you better be able to make it over quicker than I can. And I know those days where you see that wall, and getting over that wall is a matter of life or death, or at least keeping your bridges. Now, in, in a case like this, these are walls, by the way. David, these are walls to keep David out from cities that God had already given him. 
or it's walls that keep David in. And I just want to keep in mind in all of this that this becomes a real formidable foe for many of us because the problem with a thing like fear is that we really can't even put a face to it. We can't put a word to it. It isn't like spiders, and that's it. I mean, in the end of it all, a a real big phobia, really, just to be honest, becomes something where we can't even put our finger on just something as if that thing went away, we'd be okay. It becomes bigger than that. It takes over so much of us. And I'd like you to think about which one of you would be reasonably fearful of getting beat up and arrested. I mean, to be honest, if you don't, you might lack a little discretion. I mean, there should be a reasonable fear inside of you that says, I don't like the idea of getting beat up. Well, I want you to, to recognize that this is a wall that Paul has had to overcome. It's the wall, by the way, that Jesus makes clear in Acts 1 when he says, lick it. And I'm going to put it in a loose paraphrase. I know all y'all chicken. He says, look at, I know that when it comes to preaching the gospel you will find a million reasons not to and be convinced any one of those ridiculous reasons is good enough. And the ironic thing is, you claim to love people, you claim that Jesus is the only way, me too, but somehow in that, we wouldn't want to offend them with the truth, even if it, were, if it does rescue them from their route to hell. And then we tell them we love them. It shouldn't make sense to us. But then there's that part of us that's like, well, I don't want to condemn myself. That drives me nuts. You know that Jesus is looking, I'm going to give you power. The word dunamis is to overcome resistance. In the simplest sense, the idea of God's Holy Spirit empowering us is to cause us to get over that big wall that's the biggest of them all, which is ourselves. So that we can get over ourselves. Because after all, you know, as well as me, that the reason I wouldn't want to share with someone or you wouldn't want to share with someone is because you're afraid they'll even just give you the British look. That's enough. Hmm. You know, I mean, and you can attach a thousand words, imbecile, idiot, whatever the word is. And that's enough. And you'll say, I love you enough to not do whatever it makes, what it costs to make you give me that look, which in essence says, I love me so much, I don't want you to look at me like that. And that's a wall to overcome. In chapter 21, verse 1, Paul is in in route, and as he's in route, I want you to take a look here, and go ahead and flash that up if you would please, our map. Um, So that what we're going to be able to see here, by the way, is we're going to be able to see Paul, and he's leaving the area of Troas, and he's making his way down. I love laser pointers, by the way. And he's making his way down, and as he's making his way down, he's going to skip again through the left to see Cyprus, a place, by the way, he's only been once, according to Scripture, when he was with Barnabas before their big blowout. Make his way then down to Tyre, to the area here of Ptolemies, which, by the way, is the the city of Akko today, a fantastic place to go visit because you can actually see a cool underground crusader city there. And then make your way down from there to Caesarea, which, by the way, was, again, the secular capital, the sort of um, political capital of the Israel area. And that is, by the way, roughly 100 kilometers northwest of Jerusalem, which is down here, by the way. So that kind of gives us an idea where Paul is making it. So you can, as we read this, again, you can sort of try to follow your way through all of this. And again, these are places, many of which this is the only time they're mentioned in Scripture, but the reason God's mentioning them more than any is he wants you to be reminded in every place, every one of these cities, the Holy Spirit's reminding me again, you're going to get beat up, you're going to get arrested. How you like me now? So 21.1, it says this, It came to pass, then when we had departed from them, that was, by the way, the, remember, that was the, um, the elders in, of Ephesus that he had been in Miletus. We set sail, running a straight course. We came to Kos, and the following day to Rhodes, and then from there to Patara. Finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And again, Phoenicia is roughly 100 miles north of Caesarea. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed on the left, we uh, sailed to Syria, landed at Tyre, and then from there the ship was to unload her cargo. It takes a week for them to unload the cargo, which again tells us that Paul wasn't taking the Princess Cruise Lines, he was taking a cargo ship, which means, you know, there isn't, you know, what Paul got was a box seat, in essence, he was sitting on top of boxes somewhere. Um, Among the cargo unloaded was Paul. And it says then, finding some disciples, we stayed there seven days. They, and this again, this is entire. We spent a week there. We've done over 800 aquatic miles, over 1,100 aquatic kilometers. And they told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. 
When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And notice the we again. That's Luke, the writer of the book of Acts. Now again, making very clear that he's been with them through this. And they accompanied us. Now, more than likely, I get the idea that that Luke is actually writing this as it's taking place. It says, now they accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and we prayed. And again, this reminds us of the kind of person that Paul was. As fierce as he could be in his letters, as intense as he can be about doctrinal truths, he was still a pussycat when it came to approach. And I love this about a guy. Now, it's a rare guy that can do this, that can be that serious. And let me just say it this way. Paul took the call of God seriously. Paul took the ministry seriously. Paul took the truth seriously. He took his witness seriously. But somehow I get the idea he didn't take himself too seriously. And there's a difference. That gets that point where you make it about you. And that's the point, by the way, where you're just ready to be offended. It doesn't take anything but to be in the flesh to do that. But every one of us can be ready for it. And the moment that you're just kind of waiting, hey, you look good today. What, didn't I look good yesterday? You know already you're waiting for it. And by the way, I've learned this. There is nothing you can do to a person who wants to be offended to keep them from getting offended. If you don't talk, you're giving them the silent treatment. If you do talk, they're going to find something. And and I'm not saying that in some paranoia. All I'm saying in regards to that is Paul was the opposite of all of that. Paul was the kind of guy that could get serious about the truth. He could get intense about the doctrine. He could make sure that this place, that the church was, that there were elders raised up, that the church was solid, that it was consistent, that believers were equipped in the faith. But he wasn't the kind of guy that did that like it was a machine or a manufactured thing. And by the way, that can be dangerous because a guy that can be so bent on ticking all of the boxes can forget about the reason why he's doing that, which, by the way, is people. But in the end of it all, what we get is that Paul has made his way, remember, they're kind of trying to get on a ship to get out of this place. They've made their way to the beach. They've made their way to the shore. They prayed, and who prayed? It was the people and their kids and their wives. I cannot get the idea somehow when this Paul was more than just sort of a frontiersman, he was a friend. Now, this was a place like Tyre, he had spent a week here, but we don't have any other record of Paul ever being there before this. In other words, this wasn't like Paul. Now, maybe it was that these were people that he had known, that he had sent over or whatever. We don't have scriptural support for it, so there's a lot of open sort of, you know, if you want to play that kind of game. But in it all, we don't have any record that Paul had ever spent any great deal of time in Tyre at all. So the reason I said that is it's just as likely that Paul showed up to a group of strangers. Listen, listen, to a group of strangers that he had nothing in common except the most important thing, which was Jesus. And they could say, well, we're Sidonian. Paul could say, well, I'm Roman but Jewish. Say, well, you know, I'm from Seleucia or whatever. But in the end of it all, it didn't matter. It didn't matter whether one skin was more olive than the other. They bled the same color and they were covered in the same blood. It didn't matter whether their language was more eloquent or not, whether Paul was so brilliant or whatever. And and can I just say, there is this issue, as I learned from this, to be careful not to make myself too anything to make myself unapproachable. Especially when Jesus, who had the only one who could choose his body, the only one who could choose his family, that could choose his background and all that, chose to make it something so, to be honest, disgraceful, Something that that didn't compel him to the place where anyone would be intimidated. Jesus could have been gorgeous, but if he was, some people are intimidated to come by gorgeous people. And that would have been it. He could have made himself rich, but then there would have been others. I mean, think about how intimidated you might be when a guy steps out of a Bentley and you think, well, I could share Jesus with the homeless guy, but that guy, that would be rough. But in the end of it all, they both need Jesus just the same. And by the way, they both could give you the same look, (laughs) regardless whether one's practiced it more or the other. But the bottom line is, is they both need the same thing. We're all sinners that need to be saved by the same Jesus and the same gift of the cross. Now, the reason I say all of that is as Paul is now on his way, he's never made himself too anything. And by the way, he could have made himself too brilliant to be approachable, but he didn't. He could have made himself, and by the way, brilliant can produce prickly. I've learned this, not because I am, but I've seen others. But you know what? Also, I can tell you another thing within some Calvaries, and to be honest, in just some churches, you could be too cool. You could just be too cool to be approachable. Now, for some people, it's all right, but it's like, I know places where, to be honest, I feel like unless I get an extra piercing and a couple tattoos on my neck, I won't really be able to approach the pastor at all. Now, again, I'm not trying to rip on anyone. The only reason I say that is, is that for every one of us, can we make ourselves, can we concern ourselves enough with people 
to be approachable. Because, you know, let's face it, Jeffrey could just look scary because he's tall. That could be enough. He could, you know, he's already got a deep voice, but he could, you know, try to make sure that everybody knows how tough he is. And that's another thing that could be intimidating. Whatever it is. But there's something about that. Now look at, there's a warning that because if Jesus made himself so approachable that even his enemies could approach him, even Judas Iscariot would approach him with a kiss after Jesus had already clearly identified him as his betrayer. There are going to be some people that will think very little of you because you're approachable. Can I just lovingly say, get over it. It's just part of the way that life is played. Now in this, we're here now in verse 5. We knelt down on the shore and we prayed. That's wives, children, Uncle Paul. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and we returned home. They returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais. And again, that's Akko. Can you see that, by the way? And can you see that at all on our map here? Um, Akko now, again, we've made our way to Tyre. Now there's Ptolemais. That's where it is right there. That, by the way, what we, if we could really expand that, we would see the Sea of Galilee just south of it and then making our way down that little lip right there is the Dead Sea. that You can usually identify most of Israel by the Med, the Dead, and the Red. Just remember that. Okay. Follow me on this. So we've made our day. Now how long do we spend in Ptolemais? You tell me. What does the scripture say here? How long were we in Ptolemais? Okay. Look at it again. How long were we in Ptolemais? One day. We spent a day there. We did spend a week, though I will grant you that. We did spend a week in Tyre. Now we spend a day in Ptolemais. We greet the brethren, we stay with them one day. Now, why stay with them one day when you stay for a week entire? I really don't know what to tell you other than that's just what happened. So maybe at this point he's realizing I better get a, a jump on it because where time is ticking and I need to get to Pentecost so I can get beat up and arrested while the most angry people are there at one point. But it says, we greeted the brethren, stayed with them one day. The next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And I want to remind you, Philip was the one that the last time we saw him, and even seeing him as one of the seven, one of the seven because in Acts 6, there were widows that were being unattended to back in Jerusalem where their big commune was. Because to be honest, the wall that had been built was a wall between, and hear me on this, was a wall between traditional and contemporary. It's just that simple. There were traditional Jewish women. They were being fed. Contemporary Jewish women, they weren't getting the same treatment. And there was a wall that went up. By the way, we're going to see that that wall still existed when Paul gets down there. And by the way, that's a simple wall we could call prejudice. And it's an easy wall. Now, by the way, there's more prejudice than you're black, I'm white, you're rich, I'm poor, or whatever the case is. I mean, those things that most people assume. By the way, that's one of the things I do love about the diversity of this fellowship. I could care less what color you are, unless you're green, and that's more than likely because you're not well, and then I would be concerned. But follow me on this. There are other things that we can build walls off of. For instance, the person that comes in with a handful of piercings versus the person who came in in the three-piece suit. What I tend to see is, is that both sides have prejudice against the other. Neither is acceptable. And, and you know what? I mean, to be a young fellowship as we are, by the way, if somebody were to come in in that sort of well-dressed three-piece suit or whatever, we you know, pride ourselves and we welcome everyone. It's interesting that that'd be the person that you'd go, well, you better, you know, let's cut the tie because we don't want anyone to think you're the pastor or whatever. But, you know, <laughs> in, in the end of it all, it's like, look it, we have to be willing to love every person because in the end of it all, this is what we all have in common. We're sinners that need the blood of Jesus to save us. Is that not true? And you know what? It's interesting because it doesn't matter where you're from and whether that be Eastern Europe, Western Europe, America, Australia. I mean, there's always going to be somebody, you know, oh, you're one of those. And if the only wall that's going to be built is because you love Jesus, by the way, that's going to happen. And again, that's a wall we can get over but the big issue in regards to Philip is, if you remember, it was Philip that was part of the, that group of people, as it says here in verse 8, one of the seven that was hired then, in essence, elevated among the fellowship to go and make sure that those other women were being tended to. But the one that was listed first was a guy named Stephen, who we read full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. He was like the first choice off of our heads. When, we, when the fellowship was brought together and we asked, hey, so, so we, need, we have a need here, we need to meet... 
interesting. It isn't like what everyone did is said, well, you're the pastor, you should do it. They actually looked and said, well, this is a very neat, simple, practical need. Who among you would you entrust to take care of people? Because by the way, in God's economy, that's the most important thing. It will always be the most important thing is people. Not this building, not a denomination or a non-denomination. The most important thing to God is always going to be people. So you can imagine, when we're talking about taking care of people, we're talking about taking care of God's most precious thing. So who do you know? Stephen. Out of doubt, Stephen. That's the guy that when you just, oh, duh, Stephen. Okay, Philip, too. And that's the guy we have here. But the reason I say that is during that time, Stephen gets elevated to be on more than that because he's sitting there and he's discussing and arguing with these guys that were the synagogue of the freedmen. And ultimately, they bring him before a religious council and stone him to death. And the man that was the affirming leader, religious leader, at that point was a young Pharisee named Saul. And I remind you, that's the guy that we know now as Paul. And the reason I say that, that it appears, at least scripturally, that the last time these two guys locked eyes, Paul was making sure that that other guy died. And the reason I say that is, what would it be like for Paul then to show up now at Philip the Evangelist's house where the last time, the reason Philip is even in Caesarea is because he fled for his life because Saul was trying to kill everybody. But back then he was Philip the widow waiter and now he's Philip the Evangelist. And can I just say there's another wall that needs to be torn down right here and that's the wall of unforgiveness. Philip, by the way, could there ever be a guy that could, I mean, do you have things you could flex and say, I have more of a right to hate that person than Philip would about Paul? Because Philip could look and say, you know, you killed my friend, prepare to die. You know I mean? Think about where he could have gone with this. But now they lock eyes and understand, this isn't Philip the widow waiter anymore. This is Philip the evangelist. And this isn't Saul the Pharisee anymore. This is Saul, well, it's Paul the apostle. And please understand, that's huge. Because when we look at somebody in the face, may God give us the spiritual vision to see who they are now and who God is making them, not who they used to be. Because to be honest, if we do that, there will always be walls up in the church. And God, by the way, only intended there to be one wall with one gate, and that gate is Jesus Christ. Then if we have walls inside this, then someone has to try to figure out, if I do accept this and come into the city, I have to decide what segment I get to be a part of. I'm like, how sad is that? So what happens? It says now, Philip, and I wonder if Philip, would you have said, you know what? There would have been a time I really would have been angry with you. I mean, fleeing for my life, that was inconvenient. That was pretty rough. But, but now I'm an evangelist, thanks to you. You were the kick in the rear end I needed to go and do what God called me to. Now, I wasn't real fond of your methods, but I'm really happy with the product. And by the way, I wonder how many of us, God, would have to bring someone like us all into our life to do what God's called us, for us to discover, for us to discover what he really has for us. Well, you're like, well, you know, I'm serving. In what capacity? Well, you know, I'm making sure some gals get fed. That is important. That's very important because those are human beings. God's like, you know what? I have so much more for you, Philip. So much more. But the problem with what happened in Jerusalem is we had gotten so comfortable in our own little fortress that we were happy to sit in here and sing Kumbaya while the rest of the world went to hell. And we were okay with that. We were numb to the pain of other people. We were deaf to their cries. And we're like, who cares, man? I'm just happy to be in here. Now, look, at in a room like this, we want to be happy to be saved. We want to, have, we want to be happy to be saved everywhere. We want to be so happy to be saved that we want to be contagious about it. So that people look and go, why are you like that? Because I'm just happy to be saved and I'd really love for you to be too. Saved from what? Well, where do I start? The penalty of my sin, the wrath of God, which... God didn't create the dump on me in the first place, but he will because he's a righteous judge. Man, I just saved, to be honest, to be saved from me. And I want to be saved enough from me so that I can look at you and be less concerned about your response and more concerned about giving you the privilege of at least saying yes to the offer of Jesus Christ. Now, what do we read about this guy? Verse 9, now Philip the evangelist, 
This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And I want to remind you, he's the show-and-tell prophet in Acts 11, 28. He was the one that showed there was going to be a famine. Now what does he do? Look at verse 11. He would come to us. He took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews in Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. Now again, here you are. You're loving on these people. It's kind of weird, wouldn't it be? You're staring in the face of somebody you tried to kill at one point, and all of a sudden a guy comes up, and he's from Judea, so maybe Paul kind of knew this is the show-and-tell prophet. But the guy runs over, he grabs your belt, rips it out of your belt hoop, and again, maybe you didn't know him. So a total stranger just grabs your belt. Which one of you is comfortable with that? Okay, even a friend reaches over and grabs your belt. Which one of you is comfortable with that? pulls it off, and then hog ties himself in front of you. And you think, this is one of the weirdest days I've had in a while. And then he says, the guy who owns this belt, this is what's going to happen to him. Now at this point, Paul has another opportunity to deal with it. And and, and I'm reminded in this that fear is not the kind of thing you can make one decision on. Have you learned that? It isn't like, okay, I've decided from this point on, I'm no longer going to be fearful. Well, good luck with that. But the problem is, is you'll, oh, it just seems like there's constant opportunity for you to have to choose to choose. Lord, you need to be my peace. You need to be my strength. You need to be my tower. You need to be my fortress. And I'm going to run to you and be safe. You are the rock that is higher than I. And sometimes it almost becomes a mantra. You're constantly saying it because there's more than one opportunity out there to be fearful. But now it gets worse. And the reason is, as at this point, notice in verse 12, it says, when they, we heard these things, and notice the we, that includes Luke, the writer, that both we and those that were from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul answered, now, at this point, now, you know what the word plead means, right? It means beg. So now what do we have? Is we have Paul's traveling companions. They've finally had it. They've had enough. They are not able at this point now to be able to take it anymore. And now they're going, please, Paul, please, let's not go to Jerusalem. I mean, you know what? I hear that Cyprus is really nice this time of year. I'm sure we could celebrate Pentecost somewhere else. Come on, Paul. Paul's response gives us some insight into him. Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and by breaking my heart? Which tells me, by the way, that Paul had a breakable heart. Did you notice that? A man, by the way, you could say, check it out, I'm writing Bible. You know, I mean, how, what would that do to you? I mean, I write a letter. Imagine if you're typing an email, and by the way, you, the moment you hit send, somehow you know it's going to wind up in Scripture. Now, I can't tell you that's what Paul knew. But imagine what it would be like to be so lit up on God's Holy Spirit that that's what came out of your hands in the first place. And yet in all of that, with all of these churches you saw planted, with all of these people he's been reaching out to, he still has a breakable heart. Now, what is he break? What is it breaking over? Paul is convinced, what seems to be the case, is Paul is convinced that the will of God is for him to get to Jerusalem. And whether that's to get beat up and arrested, that's okay. He's going to go because it seems to me that Paul says he goes bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. In other words, the Holy Spirit's bound. This is, this is my course. All the way back when Paul got saved back in Acts 9, and he was recruiting, if you remember, God was recruiting this, uh, this uh, prophet, Ananias, and he says, look at I've got this guy I want you to go and lay hands on. I've already showed you to him. Which, by the way, tells us that God already knew how he was going to respond because that's quite a gamble. I mean, imagine all of a sudden it's like, you know, God says, oh, by the way, Andrew, you know, I, I've been showing you Katya's face and she's going to show up today and she's going to, and you kind of go, well, well who is she? And, like, and then God says, oh, no, Katya, would you like to go do that? And you kind of go... Gosh, well, you already showed him. But God says, look, it's this guy, his name's Saul. And of course, just like most of us, we get in a debate with God, trying to fill him in on information he might have missed, right? God, perhaps you've missed the memo, but this guy's trying to kill us. You're right, isn't that God, you know, perhaps you've forgotten or you might have just sort of missed it, but this is due today. This person's getting crazier. The situation's getting weirder, whatever. And you're trying to fill God in as if somehow God's like, oh, what was I thinking? You're right, let's get to work on that. Gabriel, get down there and tell someone something. I mean, think about it. And in that, God says to this man, look it, he's a chosen vessel of mine, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And I wonder if this guy, already in fear of the guy, kind of goes, oh, suffer. Well, I guess I can get over there if he's going to suffer. Well, I mean, whatever the case is, but I kind of get the idea that Paul, God lets him know, look at, you're going to suffer for my namesake. I've already made that clear. 
So it doesn't surprise Paul, but look at what he says in verse 13, because it's the radical way of getting over this wall. What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but to also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice he doesn't say, I'm willing, because there's a difference. Any one of us could pretend to be willing and be convinced we're willing, by the way. But there's a difference between being ready and being willing. To be willing means somehow this is already resolved. This is a resolved issue where he's now, well, he's standing on line ready. He's, he's waiting for the moment to happen. And I look at that and I think in regards to my own life, and I pray you would pray the same. Am I ready? Am I not just convinced that I'm willing to die, but am I ready to? That if the opportunity presented, and let's face it, I really think that one of the things with the body of Christ that we could be really weak on is being ready. So what happens is the person comes and then afterwards we go, oh, you know, if I, I should have been ready for that moment and I know that I could have prayed the prayer with them. I could have led them to the Lord or whatever the case is. And, and then we walk away going, oh, I should have been. And God's like, look at I want you ready. Paul here, by the way, makes really clear that he's, he's like somehow in all of this, he sat down and he's kind of got that point. And by the way, if any of you have ever had a terminal illness or been around somebody who does, you kind of know that there's that point where there's all of those gamut of emotions and that gets that point sooner or later where a person just kind of looks and says, I'm ready. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I want to stay alive for this purpose or this. I want to love on you or whatever. But to be honest, I've sat down and I've reconciled this in my heart. Now, I haven't lied to myself and said that it's, it's going to be easy or it's going to be fun. It's going to be rough. There's a gal in our fellowship, as you're probably aware of, that's a few days past due date. And I'd like to think, and she looks at us, and that's what she says. She says, I'm ready to get rid of this baby out of me and hold it in my arms. Now, you know, the girl's kind of little. So uh, right now, it almost, she looks kind of like when she, you know, kind of reclines, she looks kind of like an omega, right? Kind of, right? You know, and the reason is, it's like the baby's like half of her total mass, and I think it's one of the reasons the Lord allows a baby to be born 40 weeks later, 40 kind of a number of testing, is because sooner or later it gets to that point where it, you just go, all right, I know this isn't going to be easy, but I'm, I, if I'm going to be ready, I'm ready. I'm ready, to get, I'm ready to have this thing. And the reason I say that is, is that Paul didn't deny that this was going to be rough, but he still readied his heart for it. Now, what if that were the case in regards to just sharing? Where you're like, you know what? I want to ready my heart that regardless of the response, I still want to have my heart readied for it. And if, they, if, they, if they're going to be weird and wig out on me or whatever the case, at least I want to be ready. Paul was ready to die. But notice he didn't say, I'm ready just to die for Jesus. Notice here he says, I'm ready to be bound and to die for that name of Jesus. And that's different. You know why? Because I know I know that there's a difference because you know there's a difference. The moment you can actually say God bless you to a stranger when they sneeze in, in, in a lift, but the moment you bring in Jesus, it's like something got weird. And, you'll, and you know how I know? Because I can talk to people that love the Lord, that are Christian, and this is the way they'll say, you know, things are really good, man. I just want you to know that Jesus is really blessing me. And Jesus, well, I was just praying the other day. And I'm just like, thank you, Lord Jesus. For the, and it's like weird. It's like, I'm like, is there something wrong? Is there, am I, am I losing reception? Am I, right? And there's a part of me that goes like this, and I'm like, is it my hearing? You know, because I look at, oh, I just want you to know things are awesome, man. I was reading the Bible, and it was so good, and I was being taught so many things, and I just said, thank you, Jesus. And, and I look at that, because somehow you just kind of know that the moment I say Jesus, and so, I, you know, I just want to warn you, if you want to play that card with me, you might get the worst out of me, which is, oh, you mean Jesus? Let's just get that thing out now. Because Paul was not just willing, he was ready to get beat up because of this name. He wasn't just ready to, 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 to you know what, you know, I'm going to get beat up for Christianity. That name, that name Jesus. And by the way, can I just dare say the biblical Jesus? Not the one people want to make up. That's, you know, I love you. It's sort of basically like the human version of Barney. But I mean the real guy. The one, by the way, who's going to come with a sword strapped to him and, and called the Word of God. That's the mighty man of war. Who, by the way, delivered us from everything. Who ain't going to put up with it forever. 
Exodus 33, when Moses says, show me your glory, God says, you know what I'll do? I'll tell you my name. In Deuteronomy 5.11, God says, look at when we start talking about the ten things that we're going to make most important, one of them is, don't take my name in vain. In Deuteronomy 18.7, we serve in that name. 21.5, we bless in that name. 32.3, we proclaim that name. David, when he took on, when he took on Goliath, he fought in that name. 1 Samuel 17.45. Solomon built the temple in 1 Kings 5.5. 5. He built the temple in the name. The Bible is called the temple of the name of the Lord. In 1 Kings 18.24, Elisha challenged the prophets of Baal in that name. Psalm 7.17, we're to sing to that name. Or of that name, Psalm 102.15, the nations are going to fear that name. 113.1, we praise that name. 118.10, we have victory in that name. 122.4, we give thanks in that name. 124.8, that name is our help. The name of the Lord is our strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Proverbs 18.10, we're told to behold that name in in Isaiah 30.27. Isaiah 50.10, we we trust that name. 56.6, we love that name. Joel tells us in 2.32, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Micah 4, 5 tells us we walk in that name. 5, 4 says there's majesty in that name. And Acts 10, 48, these guys baptized in that name. And 1 Corinthians 6, 11, we're justified in that name. And whatever, listen, 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 Colossians 3, 17, whatever we do, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it in that name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks and glory to Him. That's what it says. Whatever you do, do it in that name. So don't tell me we're going to do something, and you know what we're going to do? We're going to be nice to people, because that's Christian, but we're going to leave out the name. Colossians says, whatever you do, do it in the name. And if you can't do it in the name, don't do it. You know what we do? We beat up people in the name of Jesus. Well, then stop. It doesn't work. The ruffians for the Savior. Ah, it doesn't work. But whatever you do. Now, what if we just took that verse? Whatever you do, in word or in deed. Whatever you do. Do it in Jesus' name. And by the way, that doesn't mean abracadabra, poof, alawama, give me what I want. Because that's normally the way it's played out in the church. In Jesus' name means God's got to do it now. But the name of Jesus, by the way, Jesus means God our Savior. Christus, Christ, is Mashiach in Hebrew. The word means the anointed one, the Messiah, the boss. And I cannot demand my Savior and Lord and then think I've done it in his name. I demand you to do my will in Jesus' name. God's like, that doesn't work. Go to your boss at work and say, I demand you to do what I say, you're the boss, and see how that works. In James 5.14, the elders anoint the sick in the name of Jesus. And of course, in Philippians 2.10, that at that name, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. If Satan's got a knee, he's going to bow it. And he's, he's got a mouth, that's clear. He's going to, look it, there's going to be a day, how cool is that going to be, where we're going to watch Satan confess Jesus is Lord. Imagine that. Imagine that day when we get to look and go, it's about time you figured that out. If every knee is going to bow, as it's been said, beat the rush, do it now. And it says, there is no other name given among men. Listen, 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 saints. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. It doesn't say, Jesus is on the list of the big guys. Don't worry, there'll be another guy showing up in 500 years. No, there's only one name by which men must be saved. Only one. And that's Jesus. If you go, that's closed-minded, look it. If you know you deserve hell, you're happy with one option, and you're not busy telling them that why isn't there another if I am receiving the just penalty for my wickedness, and God says, I would really like to save you from that, I'm not going to go, that's all you got is give it to me, punish someone else for it instead of me, and then give me your innocence? What kind of nonsense would that be? What kind of imbecile would I look at God and go, let me earn it instead? Is that crazy? When the only doctrine of grace is the truth, 
where Jesus died on my behalf to give me salvation? Why would I ever want to earn what would be given to me when it came at such high a price? Now, one we would not notice it says then, and then at verse 14, when we would not be, he would not be persuaded, that Paul, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we packed and we went to Jerusalem. Now, there were some disciples from Caesarea who went with us and brought with them a certain Manassan of Cyprus, another guy we're only going to meet here, an early disciple with whom we are to lodge. Now, basically what happens is this guy is our hookup for a place to stay. He's like, Manasseh's like, I got a house in Jerusalem. You guys come with me. I'll give you a place to stay. Thanks, Manasseh. When we had come then to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in to, with us to see James. And all the elders were present. When we had greeted, he had greeted them, he told them in detail those things in which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, now, I'd almost put, but they said to him, now don't miss what's happening here. Paul came in and he goes, let me tell you what's happening. Philippi, bunches of people are getting saved. Ephesus, man, all of Asia has heard the word of God because of the school that's there now. School of discipleship, how cool is that? Thessalonica, man, let me tell you what, beautiful things are taking place there. Oh my goodness, you should see what's happening in Corinth. And crazy things are happening. The people are falling in love with Jesus everywhere. And they go, wow, that is so awesome. But there's something i got to tell you. You ever have those moments where you're telling people about how good your day is or whatever, and they've got that look on your face like, oh, they're about to drop the bomb on me? And they're like, I don't know how to tell you this, but this is going to change your day. Now look at what they're saying. It says here, now, now you see, brother, you ever have those moments? Okay, bro, walk with me on this. How many of the myriads of Jews who, by the way, who have believed, there are, who have believed, and there's all, all of them, zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who were among the Gentiles to forsake Moses saying they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk in the ways according to the customs. Well, what then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear you've come. Did you hear what just happened here? All of a sudden, I mean, look at Paul's ministry. Remember, this is the guy that's sort of super Jew, if if I could dare say that. He's super educated in regards to the things of the law. And all of a sudden, God says, well, good, now that you're really strong in that, let's put you in a place where you're weak. Let's get you to the Gentiles. So Paul goes to the Gentiles. All these Gentiles are getting saved. It's like Paul tries to share with Jewish people they want to kill him. Paul turns around, he sneezes, and six people get saved that are Gentiles. I mean, you kind of get the idea, and you watch people like this sometimes. It's like, they really want this, but every time they go here, great things happen. And so now Paul's finally going to do what God's called him to, and he's going and he's going... This is so amazing that people get saved. And they're like, wow, that's really, that's really cool, bro. Oh, but. And you're like, what? Why should there be a but to that? You know what I mean? But let me tell you, here at the headquarters, well, there's some guys here. And you know what? Look at All of a sudden, there is like this situational Christianity. All of a sudden, it's like, look at what we decided here was that there's really, think about it, there's two kinds of Christians. There's the Jewish Christian, and you have to keep the law. I mean, you have to do those things. But then there's the Gentile Christian, and we told them they really don't need to do that stuff. Now, how do you sit together in a room? We're the law keepers. We're not the law keepers. Do you see what just happened? You know what happened? A wall went up in church. And a wall went up in church by leaders who kind of looked and said, you know what happened? We didn't, you know, I mean, these people, and the reason they're so upset is because they think, they really think, you think everybody's on the same plane. They really think, you think it really doesn't matter. And that same lie happens today. You know what will happen? Delek can go to Turkey, and she starts sharing Jesus, and there'll be some that will be convinced, and maybe even Delek was taught this, that if you give your life to Jesus, you'll no longer be Turkish. You go to Israel and you start sharing with Jesus there and someone will say, look, you know what will happen? If I give my life to Jesus, I'll no longer be Jewish. What do you think happens to you? Do you think now, well, you did get a blood transfusion, but the blood was the blood of innocence, the blood of Jesus. You know, can I say this? 
you will. You'll cease to be Turkish in this sense, and you'll cease to be Jewish in this sense. You are now a citizen of heaven. And you have to be willing to let Jesus reinvent you from the floor up because the foundation's him now. You can't move the house, change the foundation, and stick the house on it. You've got to tear that baby down and start it from ground zero. And that becomes the problem. And when that doesn't happen, you know what happens? There's the Ghanaian Christian. There's the Turkish Christian. There's the New Zealand. There's the Kiwi Christian. There's the London Christian. And you know what? Then what happens is there's the East London Christian and the West London Christian. Those West London guys, they all dance. The East London guys, we're all, you know, what's up, Holmes? I mean, there's a difference, right? There's the North London Christian. We're a little more posh. There's the South London Christian. We're a little more essay. I mean, in all of that, it's like, see what happens. And you know what happens? We'll kind of look at each other, but we'll look at each other through the fence. And we'll kind of hug, but we'll hug like distant family members, like stepchildren, instead of all of us that deserve hell, but Jesus saved us. Do you see what I'm saying? And God takes that very, very, he takes it so seriously that when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, listen, listen, listen. He says, you need to be very observant of people who are causing divisions in the fellowship. He says, because those people, listen, even brothers, are taken captive to do the will of the enemy. That's what he says. He goes, you know what the enemy really wants to do? He wants to divide. But let's face it, if you dismember the body of Christ, how healthy can anybody be when it's dismembered? And what will happen is we'll have our groups. We'll have the Jamaican Christian group. We'll have the Portuguese Christian group. We'll have white Christians and black Christians and old Christians and, you know, young Christians. And, oh, you're a young church. I couldn't possibly fit in there. I'm old. Praise God. Be old here. Let's grow together. Oh, I'm, you know, you guys are like a poor church. And, no, I want to go to a rich church. Well, Really? Really, that's what you got. That's what you're bringing to the table, is that? You know what? Listen, and, and, I, and I want us to keep in prayer for this. And we are rounding a corner here because, well, we kind of need to, but just the same. Please, please hear me on this. In Israel, one of the guys we have planted there that's doing the work, John, Yanni, his ministry, like half of the people are Arab Christians. In other words, sort of, they would call themselves Palestinian or whatever. Half of them are Jewish. And it's like people are scratching their heads going, how are these people fellowshipping? But the last two weeks have been really rough on them. Because to be honest, what's happened now as a result of that is, well, what's happened as a result of that is that they've, they've been more political than they have been purposeful, if that makes sense. And it's kind of easy to do. You're raised in a household where that happens. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know what? Those darn Jews, those darn people. And what happens is, wait a minute. You guys were actually joining hands and singing last week. Now you're kind of looking at a us and them. Man, that just should never happen. Hey, you know what? There is a church that meets here in this same room. The pastor, the reverend, wears a robe. And everything is done very orderly. And I say, praise God. There's another fellowship that meets in here. And man, almost all bets are off, man. Things are a lot more lively. And somewhere we're kind of in the middle of that. But I tell you what, I praise God for both. And the reason is there are some people that need that kind of order or they go mental. Praise God, because we'll drive you mental then. There are those, to be honest, really aren't happy unless they feel like they are going mental. Well, then there's another place for that too. But isn't it nice that we could just, but it isn't like a us and them. The bottom line is we were all bought by the same blood. But could you imagine me saying, I mean, imagine, let's, just, let's, put, it, let's put a little flesh on this. Let's just say we send Andrew out. We send Andrew out and we send, as well, we send Francis out and both of them. And we send, let's say we send, we send Francis to Macedonia. And he shares there. And then you kind of have to ask, South Macedonia or North Macedonia? Because are we talking people that are of a Greek influence? Or are we talking to people that are more Bosnian and so forth? We, we send, on the other hand, let's just say we send Andrew. And we send Andrew just, well, let's just say we send him to Poland. So he can blend in like a chameleon. <laughs> and there he is now sharing Jesus. And they both come back. And as they both come back, you know, and all of a sudden, imagine me saying, oh, you know, Andrew's like, wow, you wouldn't believe what's happening in East Europe, man. Things are just, people are just getting saved everywhere. 
And then Francis kind of comes back and he's like, man, you just wouldn't believe how amazing what God is doing. And, and, and I'm like, well, well you know, I just want you to know, before you guys get it, before you even tell the fellowship, you need to know that Eastern Europeans sit over here. So if they're going to come and visit, they can only sit, and they can only sit in these four rows because this is our Eastern European rows. You know, and all, you know, it's like, okay, and then we've got the Korean Christians and we have to have them right back here because they might open up some kimchi and that doesn't smell so good. So we can't, so we don't have them over there. And we're going to, oh, and you know, wait a minute, but wait a minute, then there's the Macedonians and the Macedonians, they might be a little lively. So we need to put them near a window or not near a window. That's amazing. And all of a sudden what happens is, and I've been in churches like that where it's like, oh, you're an American or are you Australian? I'm just still not sure. So why don't you just... I'm like, wow. And so I just get up and I go and I just find a group of people where I just do nothing like them and I sit right in the middle of them. And sometimes I can't even speak to them. Like I'll turn around and go, loo, loo, loo. and I'm like, sir. But the moment that the praise starts, we'll just start, we'll just look at each other and smile because we look at each other with that knowing, look, I'm saved too. Jesus bought me. And I belong to him. So you know what? I'm, to be honest, I'm no longer an American. And that's not because I've moved here. I'm a Christian, man. And I'm a citizen of heaven. And I've been bought by the blood of Jesus. And because I'm bought by the blood of Jesus, nothing else is as important. I mean, you know, sooner or later what happens is the church grows. We, the groups become a little bit more, like, even more specific. So all of a sudden it's like, we need from 30 to 35 blonde and over 6 feet tall group over here that make this much or don't make this much or from this country. And it's like, you know, isn't it cool? Look at, who's, look at who you're next to. That's the way God intended it. The day that I got saved, I walked into a, I walked actually into a field, and in the, as I walked into the field, there was a guy in a three-piece baby blue powder suit, sweating through that thing like it was just embarrassing. Next to a guy that looks like he's straight out of Camden, man, chains, piercings, everything, leather everywhere, and he had leather for part of his face. And they were, but the thing is, they were jumping up and down next to each other. And I looked at that and I said, if those two guys could get along, there's got to be a place for me here. And it isn't like you go, okay, well, we're going to take all the Camdonians or Camdenians or whatever. You guys go right there because we need to keep an eye on you or whatever. The bottom line is we're all in the same place. So look at what, what James is saying is, look at, Look at, we're going to have to have church and they're going to know you're here. And what they heard is that you say that everyone's the same. So look at, this is what we ask you to do. Verse 23. This is what we tell, we tell you. Okay, maybe that's where we'll stop. <laughs> so now what you have is a wall. And by the way, we're going to see that even more profoundly next week. But beloved, please hear me out as we go to prayer. That there is a wall that's built up here and, and it's the simplest sense of this. The moment you, got, you gave your life to Jesus, you took who you were and he got nailed to the cross. And then Jesus loved him enough to bury him. If we actually baptized people like some people live their life, we, you'd never go under. What we do actually is we just float you. And then we pick you back up. Because the idea is, well, you know what really happened is you kind of add a little, little of that living water to your life a little bit and now you're up and you're a little wet little different for a while. And that's a pretty radical thing because what happens is, look, Jesus didn't come to orbit your universe. He came to be your universe. And you know what? That becomes the problem when I say, look, I'll accept Jesus, but he has to let me still be. No, no, no. You're not allowed to drag anything over the cross. That got nailed there. And if there's anything you're still trying to drag over, to be honest, that's an idol now. Now, that doesn't mean, look it, I will never use my talents or whatever. I'm just going to be a nincompoop or whatever. The, the bottom line is, look it, everything that I am, every element that I'm created by, I surrender to you now, Lord. And if what you want is for me to live 15 years with cancer to demonstrate your power, then that's your will. I'm going to live it. Ready my heart for it. If what you really want to do is what you, you want me to just live a vibrant life and I never get young, I'm way cool with that too. But ready my heart for whatever it is so that that guy could be. Now, there are others, by the way, that if we baptize them the way that they live their life, we just take you down and just leave you under because all you think about is this is who I used to be. I used to be a this, I used to be a that. Well, that's great, you used to be, but that guy got buried for a reason. So you could be raised in the newness of life. And the newness of life doesn't involve the old you. The old you got, well, you got properly punished by being left at the cross. Now look at in this fellowship, 
the only thing that matters, the only wall comes with one gate. And that wall is, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ or not? If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, that's our gate. A wall, by the way, without a a functioning gate is called, well, to be honest, is the wall of a prison. But a wall with the one gate that functions and is available, well, to be honest, that's that's what we represent. And by the way, if Jesus really is the only name and therefore the only gate, I have to love you enough if you don't, if you haven't accepted Jesus, to let you know you're on the other side of this wall and that wall is a wall of guilt. Look, at if I'm guilty and I stand before the Lord and I try now to do really good things, I still have my guilt. It's a big thing in between us. But Jesus, the moment I said yes to him, bam, he took down that wall and it's over. There's nothing between me and him now. And you know what? No matter how I doll myself up on the other side, you're still behind a wall until, Jesus, until you let Jesus tear it down. Now, as we go to prayer, first of all, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? Are you in a position where you said, you know what, yes. I recognize that no matter who I am, black, white, old, young, rich, poor, educated, not educated, whatever you are, no matter what I am, where I am, or whatever, in the end of it all, what I am universally with every other human being as a person that was born defective by being a sinner, chasing after my own things, but God is an infinite, in his infinite love died on the cross so that I could be paid for, and I said yes to that gift. And I can look at you as a joint heir of the grace of life. Joint heir means we're both getting the same thing. Grace means neither of us deserve it. And what is it that we're both getting we don't deserve? Life. You know what? We've escaped hell. We've done it because God loves us through his grace. Isn't that amazing? Now, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I would like you to join me today just to ask the Lord, is there any walls? Walls of unforgiveness, walls of prejudice, walls of natural whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, walls, to be honest, of where I've built a wall with my own dead body that I'm trying to drag over and still be. Because tonight I know the Lord wants to tear down those walls. But if you haven't accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, tonight I'd like to invite you in to the place of forgiveness and freedom and deliverance of joy. That's the choice you have. The door is open now. Will you pray with me, please? God, I thank you. I thank you for your beautiful word. I thank you for your amazing, the way that you teach us and lead us. I thank you for this beautiful text and this, this guy, this Paul, who clearly didn't drag the old guy over tribe, but in the end of it all, had to leave him behind. He had to leave him behind to become what you're calling him to be, to be an evangelist to Gentiles. Now this poor guy shows up at a church, Lord, and in the church it's sort of like, here's your area, and don't offend those people by telling them that they're not special. Lord, remind us we're all special. We're so special you'd rather die than live without us. So Lord, tonight I pray by your power, by your spirit, that you administer to us, Lord. And I pray for every believer, myself included, please do not allow us to be people who put up walls where you didn't intend, but also to put up the right ones, Lord, to to guard our hearts from a world that is going to destruction and to and to not allow it to influence us the way that you would that that we could let it otherwise. But Lord, to always have that gate open to recognize that Jesus, your gift was what was necessary. That your gift allowed us to be set free from our own prison of our guilt and sin. And so, Lord, I pray for us that there would be no attitude towards any race or nation, any social status. But, Lord, that we would all come to you as sinners and receive your grace. Now, Lord, in that we do know that there is that wall of those that would refuse you or somehow demand that you bend to their bend. And you're not into that. You're here to reinvent us. So Lord, make us people who are willing to see the way you see. And Lord, I thank you for Paul's example. 
a man that was so heartless at one point that he would drag people out of their houses and watch men and women and children arrested and beaten. And now he's a guy that's, maybe even some of those people he had arrested and beaten. Now he's on a shoreline praying with them, loving on them. Oh, I thank you for the way you transform us. I thank you that we're so not what we used to be. And God, I just pray right now that you would just move in our hearts. And right now, if there be any who have weren't sure whether they've ever really accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, and again, I remind you, it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It says, if we're willing to believe in our heart that the Father, that God raised him from the dead and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that God promises to save us. He made that clear in Romans 10, 9, and 10. So tonight, if you'd like to accept the gift of Jesus, I invite you right now just to pray this prayer. And as I pray this prayer, I ask you to listen. If you agree at the end, I simply ask for you to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. And this is it. God, I confess to you, I'm a sinner. And as a sinner, I recognize you as a righteous judge punished sin. But I believe you loved me so much that you tore down that wall. And you tore down that wall by sending Jesus to die on the cross for me. And in dying for me, he died and rose again so that all of my penalty could be paid. And in him raising again, he offers me new life with him as my Lord and the architect of my reinvention. So I say yes to Jesus, yes to his gift of salvation, yes to his offer of lordship. And as I surrender myself to you now, reinvent me. Don't let me drag over the cross that which doesn't belong there. Let me leave, or to say what belongs there. Let me leave at the cross all that I am, and I hand you every bit of my life and let you do whatever you want with it. So have your way, I pray. I'm yours. I belong to you. In the name of my Savior and Lord, Jesus the Christ. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.